bell rang and Cha Tik Lung walked inside. Hey dad, the man's two sons called out. He had just returned from Asia-Pacific breweries where he worked. His wife, Madam Mok Tre Fan, headed over and gave him a hug. How's your day, darling? Same old. <sighs> APB is a different animal from what I'm used to. But I don't think we'll have any problems? He might have replied. Chatik Lung could have sat down at the dining table with the family, where they would talk and laugh about their week. His two sons would have recalled many occasions like that day, where their father was both a caring and loving father. Except, they wouldn't do so just to reflect. They would recall specific instances in a letter to Judge Taeyong Kwan to beg for leniency if they were ever hoping to see their father again. You're listening to Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by One Up Media. I'm your host, Yo Guangjin. In the last episode, we learned about the 35 million that Mr. Teo Cheng Kiet embezzled over 13 years, which was the largest instance of financial fraud at that time. What the CAD didn't know was that in four years' time, they would have another case which would surpass Mr. Teo's crime and stand as one of Singapore's largest instances of commercial fraud done by a single person up until today. But for now, it wasn't a surprise why the CAD didn't catch onto Cha Tik Lung sooner. In our research, we too were very skeptical if we had the correct man. Hey, haven't you heard? We've got a new finance manager. Someone within APB might have said. It was January 1999, and Chatik Lung just walked into APB and headed straight to his desk. As far as everyone could tell, he looked somewhat like an ordinary middle-aged man. Hey, Tik Lung, a couple of the boys are going to drink at the Tiger Tavern. Do you want to join us? Someone would have asked. Hmm, I'll see if I can make it. The Tiger Tavern is APB's bar that looks as if it was tapping directly from the factory. It has a rustic feel and seats just beside the factory and office of APB. Drinking at Tiger Tavern to network makes sense to many people in APB, since it was how the company started. In 1931, it was said that a late-night exchange over drinks at the Raffles Hotel in Singapore between executives from the Heineken Company and Fraser and & Nerve gave rise to Malayan breweries. It was only in 1990 where the Malayan breweries were renamed to Asia-Pacific Breweries, or APB Singapore. It was evening time, and the boys headed to the tavern for a quick pint. I wonder if Chatik Lung is going to join us. One of them might have asked. Just then, the doors opened, and a middle-aged man walked in. Hey, Tik Lung, we're over here. He headed over and a couple of pints started coming in. Then more pints. And maybe just a couple more. 
Hey guys, I cannot drink anymore. Tik Lung might have mumbled. What? You're from APB, man. You've got to start training. Someone might have exclaimed. According to the records, in the following years of service in APB, Chia Tik Lung would often be mocked by his inability to drink by his own colleagues. But that, however, would not be the only thing that they would comment about him. He would be called a quiet manager, who would get along with others but also be unremarkable and somewhat ordinary in his personality. If he does step up at work, it seems to be for good, where he assisted in a flood relief effort to Cambodia in 2001. That resulted in a $100,000 donation from APB. As far as we could tell, Cha Tik Leung was nothing like Teo Chen Kiat at work. He wasn't ridiculed for his academics because he was qualified. In fact, he drew an annual salary estimated 200000 to 300000 as a finance manager in APB. So then we thought, maybe he had a tragic past. But again, it didn't seem so. He studied in Victoria Secondary School, then studied accountancy in National University of Singapore, and graduated after completing his degree. He also married Mok Trey Fan, who was a teacher and had two sons, born in 1987 and 1989. As far as we could tell, he had the stability of a loving family and the salary that indicates an upper-middle-class family. So what went wrong? According to the records, Cha Tik Leung's life had seemed unremarkable, but it wasn't to say that it was boring. On the corporate standpoint, he progressed and challenged himself constantly. After NUS, he worked in an accounting and consultancy firm, Arthur Anderson, before he became an assistant vice president at UOB. He then left to become a mergers and acquisition manager at Jack Chia MPH, before landing in Swire Pacific Offshore Services as a financial controller. At every step of the way, there was some type of progression or variety change in his career. But in 1994, when he was working in Swire Pacific Offshore Services, he would have experienced a change in tempo that made any excitement from his career taste like water. Cha Tik Leung boarded the cruise ship. Hmm, let's see. What's there to do in this cruise ship? He might have been thinking. Within a couple of days, he would have been done with the activities available on the ship. So he decided to pass his time doing something healthy. Walking. It was the afternoon, so the sun was getting pretty hot. And Cha Tik Leung was looking for shelter during his walk. By chance, he saw a door and headed straight into it. Bright colourful lights pierced his eyes. What in the world is this? He might have thought as he closed the doors behind him. He saw beautiful women standing behind green tables and soon realised where he was. So, this is what a casino looks like, Cha Tik Leung might have thought as he walked towards one of the tables. Want to place a bet, sir? A croupier might have asked. Well, there's nothing to do. So why not? Cha Tik Leung headed to buy some casino chips. By the end of the day, he had somehow won majority of the bets that he placed, despite being a novice. 
this would be the first time where he thought that there was easy money to be made, which broke the habit that he was used to all his life, where you would earn money by working hard. Chatek Lung, The Straits Times, lawyers, and many more parties will write about this day years later, where his life would never be the same again. While a casino might be a place where they encourage patrons to take risk, the casino themselves are very much risk-averse. They employ statistics and game rules to create the house advantage, which refers to the percentage of theoretical wins that a house enjoys. Using Baccarat as an example, a punter has essentially two choices. He may bet on a banker or on a player. If we ignore all effects of the specific dealing sequences to the game or unique scenarios such as betting tie, the chances of a win on either the banker or the player is even. This would also mean that in the long term, the casino or the house has an equal opportunity to win or lose against the player, just like flipping a coin. This makes no sense to the house. As such, the house introduces the banker's commission into Baccarat where a 5% commission is deducted from the payoff to the punter if he wins a bet placed on banker. By having large amounts of transaction volumes, the average house advantage earnings will stabilise according to the commission with limited variability. This is why the house always wins. And since each bet is a zero-sum game, what the house profits, the punter loses. In a strange way, the winning move against the house for a punter is not to play. For Chia Tik Lung, he never experienced the disadvantage at the very start of his journey, which was why he would continue placing small bets in the casinos that he had access to. He wouldn't know at that time it was just a matter of luck. And since he was making a profit, his body's own reward system would continue to give him that sense of pleasure forming a habit. He would continue to play, continue winning, but eventually, he would learn that the house always wins. Cha Teklung was packing his things. Hey dad, where are you going again? His sons might have asked. Nothing much, just a company cruise trip again. He might have replied. He would have probably kissed his wife goodbye before he headed to the harbour. The moment he left his house, his palms started sweating. I've got to win. I've got to win. He might have been thinking as he looked at his email notifications. An email unread popped up titled Credit Card Dues. His heart continued racing on the taxi trip to the harbour. Things were getting tough, but everything was going to change starting today as he made his way to the Star Cruise ship. As Chia Tik Lung boarded the ship and entered the casino, he might have thought, I've got to win, I've got to win, because if I don't, I'm not sure what I'll do. From the outside, it would appear that Chia Tik Lung was progressing well on his career path. But unbeknownst to anyone else, he was also gradually cultivating a gambling habit that soon turned into a full-blown addiction. Early on, the repercussions of his addiction 
were well within the realms of the law. He was taking on debt legally, to the tune of $100,000. According to the records, it seemed unclear if his wife and children suspected anything. But Chia Tik Leung would supposedly start gambling in star cruise ships almost every fortnight in 1997. In a strange twist of fate and skill, Chia Tik Leung actually beat the odds and was even offered a credit line of $75,000 by the casino. By the end of 1997, he had reportedly made a total of $1 million through his addiction, well covering all of his debt and losses accrued along the way. However, gambling addiction inevitably finds a way to consume their victims. And for Mr. Chia Tik Leung, he would soon find himself running out of luck. Chia Tik Leung stared into the camera lens. From a certain angle, he might have thought it looked like a huge black eye that was staring back at him in judgment. How did everything turn to this? He might have thought, looking deep into the camera before reaching out to press record. He was filming himself late at night. There was silence in the recording. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know how to tell the people that he loved that this video would be the last time that they would see him. How did everything turn to this? He remembered walking down the Star Cruise ships in 1997 feeling well accomplished knowing that he had just become a millionaire. Whatever statistics and house advantage didn't seem to apply to him. It must be skill. The house had done their math, but so did I. And maybe mine was better. He might have thought. He snapped out of his thinking and continued looking at the camera lens. He began mouthing some words to say goodbye before drifting back into his thoughts. He remembered his assuredness and the grandiose fantasies that blinded him. If it was so easy to become a millionaire, how long more till I become a multi-millionaire? A hundred millionaire? Even a billionaire? It was those thoughts that lured him back to Starcruise ships fortnight after fortnight after fortnight until he decided to go for broke and gambled for 14 straight days instead of every 14 days. It was those very same thoughts that crowded his mind as he stared down the camera lens, a feeling of sickness brewing within. There were many instances where gamblers were asked to reflect on when was their turning point that led to their addiction. Commonly, they would mention a background of instability or vulnerability, as well as a moment where they experienced luck. Retrospectively, had they not experienced luck, maybe they wouldn't have been addicted. And yet, when they start losing, they continue down the spiral until they are apprehended by society and forced to stop. If losing is such a powerful disincentive as we think, why doesn't it stop them? In 2016, BBC conducted an experiment with Tony Franklin, a man who ruined his life due to gambling and ended up losing over a million pounds. The experiment was led by Professor David Nutt, a neuropsychopharmacologist who specialised in understanding addiction. Together, David Nutt, Tony Franklin and BBC was going to create 
history. For the first time, they would be scanning a former gambling addict's brain with an MRI scanner while he was playing a fixed odds betting game. Roulette. Everyone's expectation was that the reward mechanism of the brain would trigger on the results of the game. If there was no positive results, there would be no positive dopamine hit. But what David Nutt found was something incredible. As Tony Franklin laid down in the MRI and placed his bets, the wheels started spinning. Back at the MRI, David Nutt noticed that the visual systems at the back of the brain begin to light up intensely. Which he would have expected, given how intensely Tony Franklin was staring at the wheel wishing for the ball to rest on his colour. However, as the roulette was spinning, the anterior and insular singular cortex started lighting up. This is the part of the brain that partners with other brain matter when it comes to emotions and impulse control. As Tony Franklin laid there and won his bet, the MRI results would show very little difference between waiting to see if you have won versus the actual winning. What David Nutt concluded was that it wasn't just the winning that counts, but also simply taking part. Perhaps to those who are deep into their addiction, the body's hopefulness when playing was enough to satisfy them and keep them hooked. This conclusion would even be echoed by Chia Tik Leng, who said when he wins, he is tempted to continue in his belief that he could win more. But when he loses, he is tempted to chase after his losses. The results of the game made no difference to an addict's cause of action. It was the taking part. Unfortunately, Cha Tik Leung learned this by experience when he was in the casinos a full 16 years before David Nutt shared this with the world. It all happened in less than 12 hours. On August 1998, in just one night alone, he remembered walking into the casino bringing his millions in and leaving its doors, losing $750,000. That night, as he left the casino, something inside him snapped. He could have felt desensitized to future losses, or he was desperately trying to recover his winnings. But one fortnight later, he lost everything he brought and accumulated newer debts. Two things were clear to him after that fortnight. One, he had to repay the money he owed, and two, he would do so by winning it back. I'll do the math, I'll make the money, and I'll make some more. He might have thought, as he headed back home. There was, however, one glaring issue with this line of thinking. He had nothing left to gamble. It was the fifth day at work, and an APB employee just sat down. Hey, Chatek Leung might have called him. Yeah, what's up? Do you know where can I find our internal annual reports and documentations? Hmm, I think it should be in our intranet somewhere. The employee might have said, What do you need it for? 
just trying to onboard myself. I mean, I'm the finance manager. I think that's the least I should do. Chia Tik Leung would eventually find two sets of documents. Number one, the APBS annual report. And number two, internal documents. He would have probably brought it home or hunkered down into a meeting room to examine the signatures of the APB directors carefully. With a pen in his hand and a paper on the table, he would begin to practice his penmanship that day over and over again until few people could differentiate his signature from the director's. SEB is a Northern European financial services group with a history dating back in 1856. At the time of this recording, they have about 1.8 million corporate and private home bank customers with 15,000 employees and 270,000 shareholders. In November 1979, SEB started doing business in Singapore and would provide debt support to corporations. They would have operated for about 20 years before Chia Tik Leung would enter the doors of their office. Hello, sir. How can I help you today? A bank staff would have greeted him. Hey, I'm representing ABB and we would like to open an account with SEB. He might have said. The bank staff paused. She knew that having APB in SEB's portfolio would be great. They were a large local brewery with heavy capital expenditure. SEB could become long-term partners by providing debt support for APB to help expand their factory capacity. Give me a second. Let me bring my manager in. The bank staff might have replied. It was unclear what was needed by SEB involving the issuance of debt. But in January 1999, Chia Tik Leung opened a bank account with SEB in the name of APB. He would have opened another account in February 1999 and successfully convinced SEB that the board had given their approval by forging their signatures in a document. As a result, SEB would extend him with a credit line of $3 million. Chatik Leung would now be ready to challenge the house again, despite knowing that the house always wins. In the next episode, we will learn how the $3 million credit was just the tip of the iceberg and how Chatik Leung's House of Cards eventually came crashing down. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by One Up Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, you can reach out to us via email at heinous at oneupmediapodcast.com or through our Instagram or TikTok page at heinous underscore oneupmedia. This episode of Heinous was researched, produced, and written by Yo Guangjin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks as well to executive producers Danny Cordy, Barry Toh from Mediacorp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous.